0: Hello, you are listening to New Books in Ancient History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am with Rachel Hall Sternberg to talk about her new book, The Ancient Greek Roots of Human Rights. Although the era of the Enlightenment witnessed the rise of philosophical debates around benevolent social practice, the origins of European humane discourse date further back to classical Athens, The Ancient Greek Roots of Human Rights analyzes the parallel confluences of cultural factors facing ancient Greeks and 18th century Europeans that facilitated the creation and transmission of humane values across history. Sternberg argues that precursors to the concept of human rights exist in the ancient articulation of emotion, though the ancient Greeks, much like their 18th century European societies, often failed to live up to those values. Merging the history of ideas with cultural history, Sternberg examines the literary themes upholding empathy and human dignity from Thucydides and Xenophon's histories to Voltaire's Candide, and from Greek tragic drama to 18th century novel. She describes the shared impact of trauma of war, the appeal of reason, the public acceptance of emotion that encouraged the birth and rebirth of humane values. Rachel, thank you so much for joining uh, me on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great. So before we get into the content of the book, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your academic background and how it led to the writing and publication of this new book. Sure.
1: So I started um, this project in a way, though I didn't know it, back with my dissertation at Bryn Mawr in the 1990s, where I wrote uh, about Greek compassion and i got more and more interested as i pursued that and by the time i got sort of to the end of that and that had led to the publication of a couple of books i learned that my observations about the development of compassion as as a value was similar to what happened in the 18th century and as a curious person, I just wanted to see what would happen if I compared those t- the two periods from that point of view. To my astonishment, no one seemed to have done this. So I played with it for a long time with no agenda. I wasn't trying to write a book about human rights. It really had not crossed my mind. I was just trying to figure out how these two eras uh, resembled one another, and what was the consequence of that. And the more I started learning new things and connecting the dots, I started to get this um, view of the similarities that really did add up to something. Quite by, I mean, I was quite taken by surprise at this. And I worked on it for longer than I would care to admit, but here's the book. <laughs> as,
0: as long as it's it's needed to take, I understand. Uh, speaking of focus, your per, like historical pericope of ancient Athens is fifth and fourth century.
1: That's right. And that's the classical period. Classical
0: period. Why that period of Athens? What happened during that period? That was different from the time before and then the Hellenistic period after.
1: What happened in that period was an astonishing flowering of, of literary culture, among other things. I mean, there was also a flowering of visual arts, philosophy, um, constitutional experimentation, um, also known as democracy. And many, many things were happening. It was just Athens was a real hotbed of new ideas, and the Athenians were quite a lively people, I believe, and they were very competitive with one another, and and prone to talk. (laughs) I mean, boy, did they talk. So apparently as they talked, sparks flew, and they invented all the stuff that we still have around with us today. And by we, I don't mean just we in the United States or the we in Europe, but everybody has, has something Greek in their heritage. They belong to a world.
0: I completely agree. Uh, and not only did it seem, and you indicate in this, your book, not only did it seem that the Greeks talked, at this period, they also cried a lot. Yes, they did. <laughs> why, why were Greeks crying more? And this is something Plato even was confused about. Why were they crying more?
1: Well, my argument in the first part of the book is that they had they were very touched by the literary genre that they, one of the many literary genres that they invented, which was tragic drama. And that that really touched them deeply. And they, and I mean the men, wept. That's what Plato complains about. It's like, why is everybody crying all the time now? <laughs> and it's so, it's so interesting. And the evidence for this phenomenon is like all evidence for pretty much everything in ancient Greece. It's fragmentary. We just have a little piece here and a little piece there. So one of the projects of my book, once I realized that these two periods were similar, one, one of my tasks was to figure out whether there was some kind of cultural path that the, the Greeks took that resembled the cultural path that the 18th century people took. But that's a period for which we have a lot of documentation, a ton of evidence. And it's very well understand that in the 18th century, toward the end of the 18th century, people started crying a lot, and I mean on a massive scale. It's really, really interesting. The culture shifted a lot, so I take the liberty of establishing an analogy and trying to um, learn from that analogy and justify the analogy. And I think that I think it works. To my astonishment, I think it works. I think that we, I'm mean, working by inference, so. I'm sure that it wouldn't be impossible to reject a number of different points that I make. I mean, when you're an ancient historian, you get used to being vulnerable. But, um, but I think that there really is something going on here. And that it, 18th century scholars broadly agree that it was the rise of the novel that was largely responsible for the shift toward tearful sentimentality in the end of the eighteenth century. and which was the context, by the way, for the invention of a lot of human rights values and concepts that were um, built into our Declaration of Independence and our other founding documents. So it's very, very important, indeed crucial moment. So I argue that, well, back in Athens, the tragic drama of the 5th century BC shifted the culture in a rather similar way by teaching empathy and making people more sympathetic to one another and more, were prone to perceive suffering and react to it in, in a friendly way. Even though no one, and certainly not I, would, would say that the Greeks were really great guys and all, or really nice people, but they thought they were. So a lot of... Um, People nowadays are are really worried about the hypocrisy of 18th century founders like Thomas Jefferson, who who laid out for these for us these very high values, beautiful sentiments and high values, and then blew it by failing to live up to them. Um, and I think that this hypocrisy is really rather than just dismiss the 18th century founders because of their hypocrisy, it's more productive to inquire into the nature of that hypocrisy, the tension between the ideals that they invented and the practical way in which they lived. So that's the gist of the book.
0: No, and, and I think that that tension is so relevant now as, as conversations about the origination of democracy or our republic are still in our discourse. was speaking about human rights, you, you said earlier on that this didn't wasn't intended to be a human rights book. And you differentiate human rights from this notion of humane discourse or rather rights talk from Humane Discourse. What is Humane Discourse?
1: Humane Discourse is a kind of way of talking about or writing about humane values that views them positively. And where I might compliment you, Jackson, my host for being so kind and so accommodating and such a great guy, that would be a form of discourse that would be emphasizing your good attributes. And I think that in humane discourse, I mean discourse, conversation or writing where the kind, where kindness and compassion and beneficence are praised, held up for praise, which is something that really didn't happen in Athenian literature before uh, the classical period. Um, One doesn't, Find it. I mean, there, there may be some hints of it, but it's not as explicit. So by the 4th century, um, the orators are bragging about Athenians being the most compassionate people. And one of them, Isocrates, is even boasts that the previous century's empire had been won by kindness an absurd claim what a conceit but where did he get that so that's what interests me is how do they come up I mean, and we think we're the greatest you know we think we've got you know we're enlightened we've got so much going on for us we, we know what we think is important and we turn around and just get enmeshed in a situation that that prevents us from coming close to reflecting those values so I do think it's it's really, I mean, a, ancient Athens was never an ideal society. Actually, never in the history of the world has an ideal society existed. If we are morally obliged to reject concepts and ideals arising from imperfect human societies, then we must reject all our concepts and all of our ideals and become nihilists. I prefer to ask, how did these beautiful ideals emerge from so much imperfection? can we trace the process? That's what my book attempts to do, and that's why people should read it.
0: No, and I, and I think you make, the, you make that claim persuasively and strongly that even if these societies aren't ideal, that their ideas are still nonetheless important and relevant for our time. So to go back to this notion of the analogy between ancient Greece and Enlightenment Europe, you say that there are these not only is humane discourse and analogy and also empathy arising from novels... But also there's this turn towards reason and warfare element. What happens in ancient classical Athens that allows for humane discourse with regards to reason and warfare?
1: Okay, so I, I lay out a sequence of events that seems to be present both in ancient Athens and in the 18th century European Enlightenment. Uh, So it's a series of steps, if you'll bear with me. And so step one is a turn toward reason. So reason is at the core of the 18th century Enlightenment. And I think that's something most people know. Uh, What they might not realize is that the Athenians were also going, they also went through a kind of similar turn toward reason trying to understand the world through logic, cause and effect, and trying to f- reason first about the the physical world and later about the social world, which is rather similar to what happened in the 18th century, where um, coming out of the scientific revolution, the inclination at first was to be looking at the physical world, but eventually thinkers got around to the social world and historical phenomena and were trying to apply reason to that. So that's sort of step one. And then I observed that uh, step two is, and this is not, the second step is not caused by the first step. This is just a sequence that I noticed is that both eras witness shockingly horrific warfare that in my opinion, shakes up the intellectuals who have been thinking about how to make society better. And all of a sudden they're confronted with these just awful wars that make them question everything. And then comes the third step is the invention of a cultural genre. And I've already spoken about tragic poetry in Athens and the novel in Europe that teaches empathy. And then it takes a while for this to happen. And there's a kind of mysterious alchemy that I cannot pretend to understand. But after the lag of some decades or maybe a generation or two, then you get people, people start talking a lot about these new humane values. They start to articulate new ideals, which is pretty cool.
0: No, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how this emerges, see, and, and as you point out really persuasively, seeming by analogy, the same set of kind of broad cultural historical conditions lead to the same level of humane discourse. Now, there's another sequence in part two of your book where you lay out the kind of the contents of this humane discourse, uh, the, the, uh, res, it's the respect, the elements of respect in Athenian discourse? What, what, what makes up the kind of discourse or elements of respect?
1: Well, I think that, <clears throat> um, a big part of it is in a way it starts with a recognition of subjectivism and the, the individual as being the sort of locus of thought and feeling and having therefore a sort of moral stature that can't be ignored or shouldn't be ignored, although often it is because, of course, in both eras we have the practice of slavery, chattel slavery, which is a complete violation of that ideal. Nevertheless, the ideal gets invented and reinvented. Uh, so that's, that's a big thing, that idea of the individual and the dignity of the individual and the respect owed to the individual. The importance of empathy and sympathy and um, ultimately compassion, um, philanthropy, and so on. So... I might have missed something, Jackson, but you've read the book more recently than I have. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, no, that
0: that that definitely was the, was the contents of it. What are some examples of Greek tragedy that that show compassionate values or virtue? Well, you, you I, I don't want to say virtues because Greeks had pretty strict character characteristics of what was a virtue. But what tragedies portrayed compassion and sympathy? in a way that may have led to this rise of humane discourse.
1: I think one of the most, I think that it's in many, I mean, tragedy as a genre tended to focus on what we call high stakes scenarios, where it's a matter of deep moral conflict, life and death, and a lot, usually a lot of suffering, and there's an interest in suffering and how people respond to suffering. Either their own suffering or the suffering of others, so there's there's a lot there. Um, one of the most important plays in this regard is titled Philoctetes. It's a play by Sophocles. It's about a wounded warrior who is stranded on a deserted island for ten years, stuck with this stuck left behind because of this terrible wound in his heel. It actually wasn't a war wound. It was he was bitten by a snake, and um, you know I don't think you really want your listeners to hear the whole plot summary. But there is a young man who comes along, Neoptolemus, and he is being instructed to to steal from Philoctetes, the wounded Philoctetes, the bow he owns. That is the only. His only source of food are the things that he can shoot with his with bow and arrow. But when Neoptolemus sees, witnesses the suffering of Philoctetes when he has these attacks of excruciating pain, he can't go through with the theft, even though he's been strictly instructed, even though the bow has been represented to him as the only way, the only tool that will allow the Greeks to take Troy. Neoptolemus just can't do it. He can't be that cruel. The suffering of Philoctetes is right in his face, and it's amplified in a way by the chorus that's present also. And they, um, everyone is very upset about the pain of Philoctetes. And, and our hero, Neoptolemus, is unable to... Follow his instructions that come from ruthless Odysseus. And people might be surprised to realize that in fifth century tragedy, Odysseus, whom we think of the Odyssey, we think of him as a hero, but he was he was a bastard in fifth-century um, drama. Too tricky, too sneaky and too ruthless by far
0: no i i think all of sophocles tragedy does exhibit as you say this this compassionate element that inst- that instills in the reader so we have the the tragedies of sophocles we have the philosophy of plato and aristotle and others the rhetoric of socrates as w- what are the main documents texts histories that 18th century Enlightenment figures who, as you argue, were steeped in classics and new classics, what were they reading?
1: That is... That's a question that I would love to get the answers to. And I... That... When I... As I got enmeshed to this project, I was really looking for those answers until I had a little reality check. I realized that I didn't have time to get a second PhD in 18th century studies and that I lacked the, personally lacked the tools that I needed to do that research. But I can tell you that they read a lot of Xenophon who was a fourth century writer who really promoted humane values. And, and the 18th century readers were, they really noticed Xenophon And I pick up a few specific points where I I saw that even without having the toolkit that I needed, it was just it was just there for the taking. I think
0: Xenophon his his history of Cyrus or his kind of almost his like novel of Cyrus that seemed to have been really beloved by seventeenth and eighteenth century figures. What what does that story of Cyrus tell about compassion?
1: The story of Cyrus the Great, uh, who lived about 200 years before Xenophon was writing his so-called history, really a historical novel, if you will, was a story of, for Xenophon, Cyrus the Great was great and was able to build this great, enormous empire because he was such a great guy. And he he really goes after this. More cynical readers would say, well, yeah, he was great to his friends, and he was nasty to his enemies. And every every ruler needs friends. So sure, he was a great guy, but not in general, just in that narrow respect. But Xenophon really touts his philanthropia, which is the word that means human-loving and is the ancestor of our world word philanthropy. Um, He really touts that quality in Cyrus the Great. And so that's definitely one text that where the humane discourse is conspicuous. And um, there's another work by Xenophon I'd like to tell you about. Yeah. It's a, a, a work called The Anabasis. And in the anabasis, a lot of things happen. You don't need to know them all, but there's one incident recounted where a sort of half-dead soldier is, is being carried by a muleteer on, on the mule, and the muleteer is angry about it. So he stops and tries to bury the, the man, that he's not the man's not dead yet. And all the bystanders see that the man, they see him twitch or something, they see him move his leg, and they say, but well, he's not dead. And Xenophon, who's the writer of this, but also an actor in the story, he smacks the muleteer and tells him to knock it off and bring the muleteer to safety and the muleteer says well he was going to die anyway and xenophon says does that mean we're all going to die sometime does that mean we should all be buried alive because that um in xenophon's text is presented as i think we all would see it as a horrible way to die to be buried alive in the ground so you see that in that Little incident, a surprising level of respect for human life, because we're talking about battle conditions, a forced retreat across a very difficult, snow-covered landscape, in through hostile t- territory, and yet Xenophon uh, shows concern for this half-dead soldier and wants to make sure he lives, has a chance anyway. So that's a pretty obscure incident but i think it's really interesting
0: oh it's it's a great example of that greek egalitarian view of human dignity that that all people deserve the the same kind of treatment whether alive or going to soon be dead but speaking of equal treatment as a penultimate question we have to speak about greek slavery so even though that greeks in, as you indicate, invent this new word of philanthropy of loving, of, you know, loving humans, which lead to our view of philanthropy. That it was custom, and you you were you forcefully and I think persuasively indicate that it was customary that slaves had to be tortured in judicial contexts. That's true. Why were slaves tortured, and what did Greeks think of this practice?
1: Well, they they seem to have accepted it. It was part of the legal system. The idea behind it was that if you were a free citizen, so not a slave, you m- might be, hopefully would be a man of honor and could be counted on to tell the truth. But an enslaved person could not be counted on. To tell the truth. And so the slaves' um, testimony was admissible only if obtained under torture. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Orlando Patterson.
0: Uh
1: I think it was 1989 he came out with his famous book, Slavery and Social Death. And I think that for anyone who's interested in comparative slavery or slavery at all, that is above all the book they should be reading Slavery and Social Death by Orlando Patterson and you really see how his idea of social death works in Athens that once a person is, becomes a slave they don't, have, they don't have a place in society it's like they're not even there they're not treated really like human beings um, with some exceptions but it's it's not good, and that was the, that was what the Athenians had, and in antiquity, I'm sorry to report that slavery was ubiquitous. Everybody had slaves. Every society had slaves. Practically, I mean that was that was normal. So it was just the way it went, and there was never in antiquity any movement uh, anywhere that I'm aware of toward the abolition of slavery. There might have been, and sometimes there were discrete uh, slave revolts where the slaves tried to get their way out of some horrible situation. This tended to happen in Rome. Um, But there was some of that in Athens. And slaves might run away, individual slaves might run away and try to escape a cruel master and get a better one. But there wasn't the idea that you could just get rid of slavery. You didn't even have the idea. We never find that idea did
0: w- one last question did did Greeks ever though feel compassion for their slaves? You indicate that they weren't seen as human, they were seen as property, there was a social death associated with slavery, but was there ever an instance that that maybe is recorded where a slave owner was you know did not want his slave tortured?
1: Well, I think that um, I'm glad you remembered this incident. <laughs> It's found in uh, speech by by Socrates, and it has to do with a very interesting character, a real real life character named Passion, who was an ex-slave who had been working with a banker. He had been the slave of a banker, and eventually so important to the banking business that he, excuse me his master bequeathed it to him. He was able to gain his freedom. Later, he, he had so much money, he gave a lot of it very showily to Athens, and the Athenians honored him. This was an ex-slave, so that's passion. Well, he had a slave that he was training, and during one of the many sort of lawsuits That um were going on at the time. A legal opponent opponent wanted to have this slave tortured. His name was Kittis. He wanted to have Kittis tortured. And Passion went to great lengths to avoid that outcome. He didn't he didn't want the slave tortured. Now uh, there's another passage where, in a different speech altogether, different author, different court case, where Someone didn't want a slave torture. He says, you can't damage my property like that, which was a consideration. If you owned property, you didn't want to have it damaged. But that's not what Pasion says. He doesn't say, I don't, you know, you can't damage my property. He he just keeps dragging his feet about the procedure. <clears throat> we don't know the outcome of the case, but so I can't really tell you more than that. But it does seem that there's an indication that maybe. That even if
0: there wasn't widespread abolition, that maybe these humane values seeped into uh, relations with slavery,
1: or they were just they were just people who were close enough to that blurry line between slavery and freedom that they 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 were empathetic, whether or not they'd been to watch the um, tragic dramas. But I should mention that. Citizens were supposed to attend the performances of the tragic plays. They were even given the, in the fourth century, there was even a fund to pay the ticket price for them so they could go. That was your civic education. You had to go. The poets were your teachers.
0: As much to the chagrin of Plato. <laughs>
1: yeah, he didn't like that part. <laughs> no.
0: But uh, nonetheless, Rachel, uh, we are we are out of time. We have gone through this book. Uh, it has been wonderful uh, your exposition of its contents thank you so much for joining me before we go just a quick question what future projects do you have in plan
1: well since i had that reality check i can't i can't go on as i once had thought i would to really see which 18th century readers read which greek texts because i i can't so i'm shifting a little bit from compassion to uh, very important Greek virtue called dikaiosune, which I, I translate as justness. It was much touted, especially in the fourth century. Everyone was talking about dikaiosune, but no one's ever really figured out what was it? What's justness? So I want to find out that's my project.
0: Well, that sounds very interesting. Again, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book published by University of Texas Press, The Ancient Greek Roots of Human Rights. You have been listening to New Books in Ancient History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.